If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We are all involved in some form or the dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. Something if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Good day, friends. <laughs> this is the bad taste crime podcast, and I just want to let you know that Vicky made the greatest face when I say that. <laughs> The last line. Ooh, it's going to be a rip-roaring episode. I'm Janelle, in case you didn't know. I'm Vicky. (laughs) I'm the one who facepalmed when Janelle went to an Australian accent. Which you will understand later. All will be revealed. But first, Vicky! Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah? Let's do some news and shit. (laughs) Oh my gosh, yeah. All right, we're just going to... We're just gonna head right over to the newsroom. <laughs> so this week, our story is from the good old state of Indiana, where a man has been jailed over too many calls to nine one one. Okay. <laughs> so, if you don't know, in the United States, 911 is our emergency services number, and you can face charges if you abuse the service. So, 61 year old Daniel Schroeder made four calls in a single evening to 911 to say that he was tired. Oh, However, honey. they have hotlines for that. <laughs> it turns out this was not his first offense. Just the day before he made all of these phone calls, Schroeder had pled guilty to misuse of the emergency system when he admitted to calling 911 to, quote, state his displeasure with a relative who was not following his rules. Does he have Alzheimer's? I don't know. this guy? So he was 61. Yeah, that's common with Alzheimer's is you'll call 911 a lot. I just know this from personal experience. Yeah. Like to say there are people in your trees and there's no trees. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is this doesn't sound like hallucinations or like mm-hmm. confusion. It just sounds like someone calling 911 a bunch of times. The first time he called 911 for the displeasure of his family member, he received a six month suspended sentence on the condition that he not call 911 unless it was an emergency. Good. So okay. then he called 911 when it wasn't an emergency. He was just mm-hmm. tired. So he got 60 days for that phone call and then another 60 days in jail for violating the provision of his suspended sentence. Okay. So earlier this year, Schroeder had an additional run in with the law when he was charged with possession, leaving the scene of a crash, and operating a vehicle while intoxicated for allegedly driving drunk through a cemetery at three times the legal limit where he damaged a minimum of four headstones. Wow, okay. <laughs> so, doesn't sound like he has had a totally, <laughs> totally great experience uh, in life. I mean, hopefully he can get some help. Mm-hmm. That's all you can hope, really. We're going to move on to Netflix and Kill, where this week we are talking about myth and mogul John DeLorean. Mm, I have seen this one. (laughs) So this three-part documentary series explores the story of John DeLorean, a larger-than-life character with incredible car dreams, which would come crashing down following a 1982 cocaine bust. He was acquitted of not only these charges, but also of later charges that he had defrauded investors and committed tax evasion by diverting millions of dollars raised for the company to himself. 
but doesn't he deserve it? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that's how that works, right? If you think God. you deserve it. That's, yeah, then you're fine. <laughs> that's fine. No, so I thought this was a really interesting documentary. I kind of hated the way that it was filmed because mm-hmm. they – so if – some some of you might not know, I was a graphic designer for a while and love typography. And so when you get these use of like big titles and bold typography choices in documentaries, normally I'm here for it. And that has kind of been the style. Like, honestly, like Mindhunter did it. I know mm-hmm. there's been some documentaries that have done this sort of thing. This particular one majorly overuses the, oh. <laughs> the title cards and stuff in my opinion like it's so i don't know and I, like the story itself is really interesting about john delorean and kind of his working through i think he worked for like gm and some other major car companies and starting his own company and then like all of the weirdness with the money and the cocaine bus and all that like that's really interesting but like the way it was set up where it was like, okay, now we're jumping forward in time. Now we're jumping backward in time. Now we're jumping mm-hmm. forward in time. Now we're jumping backward in time. The whole time was like, yeah. I think it could have been presented, like it would have been just as interesting if it was done in a lineal way, mm-hmm. in my opinion. You can understand that. Yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think it definitely, with that like jumping around, gave me 80s, 80s vibes. Yeah. Like, also, like, the erraticness, I think, adds to the fact that he was an erratic person (laughs) doing erratic things. Yeah, I could see that. On cocaine. I could see that. (laughs) Right. Yes. So, I feel like that kind of... (laughs) Yeah. That kind of was a thing. Yeah. So, the cocaine bus was really interesting because it was a filmed, like, video surveillance FBI bust Mm -hmm. that was sort of set up and does land into this murky area of entrapment that like the fbi finds itself in in so many ways yeah Yeah, it does (laughs) you know i and i definitely think like as far as him using the money in the fraud like that is a little bit more surprising to me that he was acquitted of because it seems really obvious that he was using this money that was allocated to him sometimes from governments sometimes Mm -hmm. from investors for personal pleasures mm-hmm. and i don't want to say i'm surprised <laughs> that he got off because i'm not uh, especially at this time i think when we were taking white collar crime far less seriously than we do now which is still not very seriously yeah that's kind of it's it's just it's interesting that he got off but i think it's worth a watch it's a really interesting tale and honestly as somebody who like like, for me, like, I am not interested in cars whatsoever, like, at all. Mm-hmm. It was still really good. Like, I don't think it was – because it's not as much about, like, the cars that he made, but more about him. Exactly. hmm Yeah. And I think that's yeah. – they, so, you know, did that on purpose to make it mm-hmm. more appealing to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So they did a nice job. It's It's pretty good. If you want to watch that, that is on Netflix right now. It's called Myth and Mogul John DeLorean. It's only three episodes, so... Yeah, it's not too bad. Yeah, so check that out. This is that part of the show where we say concept may not be appropriate for our listeners. Uh, we will be talking about murder, as always. Typical. <laughs> and <laughs> some, some other stuff, but um, if you're sensitive to that, this might not be the one for you. But Chanel, what are we talking about today? I mean, mine's not going to be that gruesome, but... Definitely. <laughs> Interesting. So, uh, in case you didn't get the uh, hint at the beginning of the episode, <laughs> we are we're going to take a, a little trip, probably the longest trip you could on a plane, to Australia. <laughs> we're talking nice. Australian crimes. So, Australia is really interesting. I watch a lot of Australian TV shows, and I listen to, like, Australian punk bands. Um, and their terminology is really great. And I wanted to like highlight some weird Aussie slang because while I was researching this particular case, uh, there were words coming up in some of the articles where I was like, the hell does that mean? So I deep dived into uh, Australian slang terms. Oh, God, and okay. um, 
I just want to ask you what you think these mean. Okay? <laughs> Are you ready? <laughs> okay, hold on. Let me close your list yes, so I don't cheat. Don't, look. don't cheat. <laughs> All right, Vicky. What do you think smoko means? <laughs> uh, well, I'm guessing it has something to do with smoking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That seems to be the obvious smoko. Mm-hmm. Like a like a like a term for like a chain smoker, maybe like that old smoko over there. <laughs> That would be good. It, it is just a term for a cigarette break. So I'm going on a smoko. Okay. That okay. is one of my favorite songs by The Chats, which is an Australian punk band. It's called Smoko. So I actually know what that meant. Um, nice. <laughs> what does Ripper mean? Uh, gosh. I feel like in our world, normally if you're talking about a ripper, some kind of a ripper, it's somebody that's like killed a bunch of people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is it somebody that's killed a bunch of people? (laughs) I wish. It actually means like, like you're a fantastic person. Like you're a little ripper. (laughs) That is like the opposite of what I thought. Okay. All right. Okay, so you might know this one because people in the U.S. use this term somewhat too, um, mostly East Coast. But uh, what does skull mean? Skull, like S K U L L. Uh huh. Uh, skull. Okay, so this is slang. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so this, this might be embarrassing. The first thing that it makes me think of is like. <laughs> uh oh. Is the term, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase getting some dome, which is just yeah. another reference to getting a blowjob. Uh-huh, uh-huh. um, yes, I have. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> so does it have to do with getting a blowjob? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. It means to down a beer, to skull a beer. No. So I never yeah, would have like in that. Massachusetts and Boston and stuff, you say skull. You skull in it. Take it to the dome with a skull of beer. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I'll, I was we'll way do, off. On that we'll one. do two more. Uh, okay. What does Sunnies mean? Sunnies. Yeah, Sunnies. I think I know this one actually. Okay. Are they sunglasses? Yes. Yes. Day, okay. Day, day, you have, you have that one I know. <laughs> this one I picked because it's the the next one is is the most favorite one that I found on the list. What is budgie smugglers? Whoa, uh, okay, budgie smugglers. Budgie smugglers. <laughs> budgie, I've heard, mm-hmm. but I don't know if it's like Australian. I've heard it in, or like pigeon. Ah, mm-hmm. um, I have no idea on this one. It's, something you're hiding something in, it sounds yes, like. Yes, it is. Uh, it's definitely hiding something. It is a slang term for a Speedo. Oh, my God. So it's hiding your dick. <laughs> it's hiding the dick. <laughs> hiding, your, hiding your balls in particular. Some bungee smugglers. Yeah. So, um, oh, my God. Uh, if you look up articles in Australia, you're going to find some wackadoo terms and you're going to have to look yeah. up what they oh, mean. Oh, boy. Okay. Now, this particular... This particular episode came about because I came across this particular crime at the library. I saw this book and went, the fuck is this? Okay. <laughs> so we're going to start our tale in Sydney, Australia in 1935. If you're not familiar with U.S. fucking history, this was a really tumultuous year around the globe. We see Italy taking over Ethiopia. Nazism rising in Germany. And then the U.S. was in the thick of the Great Depression. Now, Australia, too, was actually super affected by the Great Depression. And the news often tried to move people's attention away from this. Now, if you're not familiar, Australia exports a lot of stuff, kind of like Hawaii. So the prices of things are significantly higher. And then you take into the account that at this time, people were exporting a lot from the United States who was also going through a Great Depression, who was also seeing shortages, there was a drought, Mm -hmm. the Dust Bowl, all that stuff. Yeah. So prices of things were exponentially higher. So it was a lot of, like, distract. Distract, distract, distract. 
Now, during this year, too, not only was it a Great Depression and all of these things were happening, there was a string of shark attacks right off the coast, which were continuously in the headlines. Like, this was their distraction. It was talking about how fucking nuts the sharks were in 1935. All of those little shark biscuits, which is people, it's slang term for people, shark biscuits (laughs) were floating around in the water and people really, really couldn't resist. So Rob Hobson was fishing off the shore in April when he caught a four meter, one ton shark. Now the shark was a tiger shark. So not the biggest of them all, but decent in size. His father actually owned the Kanji, uh, or sorry, Kuji Aquarium, which was created to bring some like life back into this dying town. He decided to bring the tiger shark to the aquarium to help boost ticket sales. Now, around Anzac Day, which if you're not familiar, is the Australian version of what would be our Memorial Day here in the U.S. Okay. So it's a lot of like remembrance of people who served. There were lots of families attending the aquarium that day. It was kind of like a hang out with your family, go out sort of situation. Now, the tiger shark was actually acting really funny since it had been captured. It wasn't really eating. It was sinking to the bottom of the aquarium for long periods of time. And if you know anything about me, I fucking hate zoos and aquariums. They enrage me. Sure. The kind of behavior that the tiger shark was exhibiting is not too abnormal, when an animal is brought into captivity, especially if it's a shark, they experience a lot of issues, and um, a lot of times they will refuse to eat, and they will kind of act out in a way. But this particular tiger shark was actually experiencing something different. It, in fact, was experiencing a little bit of shark indigestion. Oh, <laughs> All I guess it never sudden, occurred to me that a shark would have indigestion, but that, could, oh, that does make sense. Just wait until you see why it has indigestion. Okay. Oh, All okay. of a sudden, the shark started to violently thrash around in the aquarium, and it projectile vomited, regurgitated the entire contents of its stomach into the water. Now, if you've ever seen a shark throw up, it's very foamy. Like a little foam party. So there's blood, there's chunks, there's foam everywhere. And as the foam started to subside and settle, they found a bunch of stuff floating in the aquarium. But one thing in particular was literally sticking out that did not look normal. As it started to float closer to the side of the tank, which keep in mind there's families in here, they discovered that one of the objects that the shark threw up was a human arm. Oh. Okay. I, uh, I don't know if you're ready for this, Vicky, but this oh, entire boy. case has been dubbed the shark arm murder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I love sometimes, like, the names <laughs> for these are super creative, and sometimes they are not. And this exactly. This just, like, says what it does on the tape. <laughs> it's a shark arm. Um, One of the books that I looked at for this is called Shark Arm by Philip Rupi and Kevin Meager, so... It's a good read. Oh, my gosh. Now, Hobson Sr. called the police immediately and fished the fucking arm out of the tank. <laughs> and he first thought that the shark was just another one of the man-eaters along the coast that had been menacing the shore, and he didn't think much else. But because he is a shark man and not a fucking detective, there were a little suspicious things happening here. The arm itself had tattoos on it and a little bit of rope tied around it. So when the police arrived, they were a little suspicious. If you're not familiar, people who have tattoos at this time are generally like criminals or part of carnivals, carnies. So they already think that there's a criminal element to this. Okay. They took the arm to the coroner and they kind of did their little inspection, and it was cited in the report that it looked like the arm had a clean cut, and it was not severed like it would have been if it was bitten by a shark. Yeah, that shit is, like, all jaggedy and Mm -hmm. ripped and... Exactly. Yeah. Now, we're gonna go back to the tattoo here. I put a picture of the arm. They literally took a picture of it. The tattoo 
again, this is 1935, not many people have it. The tattoo was really distinct. Yeah. So distinct that they actually had an idea of who it belonged to. Now, if oh. you're not familiar, the tattoo is in a black outline of what appears to be two kind of generalized male figures boxing one another. Yeah. Now, this tattoo of these sparring people was eerily similar to the tattoo on boxer Jimmy Smith. Smith was an English-born boxer who kept boxing like well into his 40s, well past his prime. He was a bit of a mongrel. He was like boxing and then had this like really heavy criminal element to him, which was kind of common for a lot of boxers. A lot of boxers were also criminals. <laughs> that doesn't seem too surprising to me. Yeah. So not only was he a boxer, he was also a barkeep, and he had a small criminal business going. He was a very busy man. Now, they called Jimmy's wife to come identify the arm, which is the most mortifying thing I've ever heard. Like, can you come check this arm for us? Yeah. So she went in there, and she confirmed that he had been missing for a couple days, and that looked like the tattoo he had. So, Oh, my gosh. They uh, even went a little bit extra, a further mile here, and pulled some fingerprints and matched them, and they did belong to Jimmy Smith. Now, unfortunately, this is where the real murder comes in. Because <laughs> the arm is a fake murder? No. <laughs> the shark was killed and gutted to see if there were any more human remains inside of it. But there were not. So I just want to have a moment of silence for Mr. Tiger Shark. We're so sorry that you got wrapped up in this, and you are just innocently yeah. eating garbage on the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> it's true, but I also understand <laughs> mm -hmm. why. Yes, so there was nothing else in the shark. They murdered him for no fucking reason. <laughs> I wonder if a shark, can a shark's body, I don't know if you would know this or not, can a shark's body digest bone? I, yeah, I don't know. Because I, I wonder, think so. Don't they have a series of stomachs? I honestly don't know. But I think there's obviously, I, like, fish and other sea yeah. creatures that have bones and, oh, like, yeah, harder eat, outer shells that they would eat. Yeah, they eat all kinds of shit. Yeah. Uh, you know, the interesting thing is I actually dissected a doghead shark in high school. We didn't do pigs or cats. We dissected oh, no, a fucking shark. Oh, no, we did do sharks. Yeah. yeah. And I don't remember discussing that. But that was also no. a smaller species of shark. Yeah. It's very confusing. Some sharks are even yeah. fucking mammals. Some sharks are actual, like, fish. It's it's all very confusing. Oh, my God. Anyway. Shark Week was the worst week because the whole school just smelled like formaldehyde. It was, like, formaldehyde it was and just, like... It's the worst. Garbage on a beach is what it yeah. felt like. Just, like, salt and sand, and it was disgusting. It was so bad. But, to be honest, it was much better to dissect a shark because there wasn't as much blood. Yes, that's true. So that it's was very nice. True. That was very nice. Anyway. <laughs> so, his wife confirmed all of the stuff. And then she also left a little tidbit that she recalls that he had actually been working part-time the night he disappeared for Reginald Holmes. Holmes was a really known, well-known grifter who was like a borderline gangster. He was a boat builder, and he also was in construction, which... Those are two, tell two telltale signs of a gangster. Uh <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, he actually built fleets of speedboats and often used them to bring in cocaine to the country. Huh. So he really loved to do, like, boat insurance crimes. That was, like, his <laughs> big thing to do. He would buy over-insured boats, and then they would magically catch on fire or sink to the bottom of the ocean. I don't know why my boats keep catching on fire. It's right? really weird. And he would use a lot of his friends to help him out. And one of them was the boat, the Pathfinder, in which Jimmy helped him set on fire to collect insurance. So they were kind of in the thick of it together. Soon the pair decided to team up with a man named Patrick Brady, who was a well-known forger. Smith and Holmes began to have a little bit of a difficult work relationship as Smith's, you know, was like he wasn't getting paid enough for the part of the crime that he was doing. He was doing a lot of the legwork and he felt like he wasn't getting compensated for it. Okay. So Smith attempted to blackmail Reginald as he was considered actually high society at this time. And if this is and this is the most Australian thing I could think of. He is a criminal a boat builder, a construction worker, but he's also high society. 
Yeah, that sounds so, right. So unbelievably Australian. Yeah. Police eventually deduced that Smith had done this last crime for Holmes, and that perhaps he later had been killed by Patrick Brady. And so they started investigating this. They started going around to the local bars because there was a lot of bars, and that's like a typical hangout thing. You go to a bar to do your business in the crime world. Now, Smith had been seen that night before he disappeared playing cards with Brady at a local hotel bar. Brady caught a taxi from Tulombi uh, and then went to 3 Bayview Street in McMahon's Point, where he happened upon the home of Holmes. That was a sentence, if ever I've said one. <laughs> <laughs> the taxi driver identified Brady and named the exact two addresses and described the passenger as, like, disheveled, and clearly he had something, like, under his jacket that he was hiding. So... Just to recap, he went and met Smith at a bar, they played cards, he took a taxi to Holmes' house, and then the the taxi driver was like, he's acting weird, jittery, and he had something under his shirt. Okay. So a little suspect. Now, the investigators decided that they were like, all right, I think we know what happened, and this is the conclusion that they drew. They figured that Brady had kidnapped and cut off Smith's arm, which he then took to Holmes' house. And he took it there in hopes that it would bring him some cash for his, like, loyalty to Holmes. The arm then was later thrown into the Marlborough Sea, and the rest of Smith's body was given a Sydney send-off, which, if you're not familiar, is also known as swimming with the fishes in the United States. They would... Ah. Yes. They would tie a weight to him and throw him into the ocean. Get some concrete so, shoes. Yes, yes, yes. So it's called a Sydney send-off in Australia when you okay. drown somebody or hide their body in the Great. ocean. Great. <laughs> so Brady was arrested, but the one problem was that there was not a body. They didn't have the body. Now, Brady quickly folded under police investigation and said that he had done the deed for Holmes, not for loyalty. He was asked to do it. Now, the investigators arrived at Holmes' home. I can't stop saying that. And he denied <laughs> even knowing Brady. He was like, I don't know who that motherfucker is. I don't know what he's talking about. And ain't nobody bringing an arm to my house. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, unfortunately, this is where it gets dark and twisty and weird. As if it's not dark and twisty and weird enough. Right, right. Four days later, Holmes took one of his magnificent boats out onto the water. With him, he brought a bottle of brandy and a pistol. He decided that he was going to get shit-faced on Brandy, which is, like, easy to do because, hello, Brandy Alexanders will fuck you yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he then attempted to take his own life. Now, this is where the slapstick Three Stooges comes in, okay? He raised the pistol to his head, but he was so shit-faced that when he pulled the trigger, he fucking missed so he grazed the front of his head oh, no. because he was so hammered and he was on a boat that was rocking out in the middle of the ocean that it just grazed his bone. He fell down and passed out, whether it be because he thought he shot himself and he didn't or because he was so jacked up on brandy. We'll never know. But he passed out and then he came to. And then he felt like a total twat and got behind the wheel of the boat and took off like a bat out of hell. He was like, get nice. out of here. Nice, yeah. So immediately upon doing this, the water police patrolling the area saw him driving erratically all over the place and decided to pull him over. And he, like, led them on this weird little chase that took them, like, two kilometers out to the ocean, where eventually he just fucking surrendered. Okay. He's like, he got that far, and he's like, JK, I give up. Oh, my God. Now, there is a picture below of him, and if you look at him, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. He looks like a fucking idiot. So, he told detectives that Patrick Brady turned up at his house late one night holding Smith's severed arm. He threatened to blackmail Holmes if he didn't pay him 500, whatever the fuck they are in Australia. (laughs) I forget the name of it. Don't they use pounds? Is it pounds? Is it Let's pounds see. in 1935? Are they still part of the queen? <laughs> they're um, not. They're a nation by then. Oh, it's like the Australian dollar. Okay. It's some weird symbol that doesn't make sense. So yeah. 500 Australian dollars. <laughs> 
He explained to Holmes how he killed Smith by dismembering his body and placing the parts in a trunk, which he had tossed in Gunamata Bay. So, hacked him up, saved the arm. Holmes gave Brady the money, but then Holmes left the, or uh, Brady left the arm in Holmes's living room. <laughs> and so in a panic, he went to the bay and threw the arm in. <laughs> oh. He's like, what do I do with this fucking arm? So he runs out to the bay and he throws yeah. it. <laughs> oh my god. Also, way, way to chum up more sharks, you guys. Yeah. Idiots. Let me just put his body in a trunk and send it to the ocean. And then let me throw this fucking arm over here. No wonder people were getting bitten by sharks. Yeah. I'm going to blame the shark epidemic of 1935 on people murdering other people and throwing them into the ocean. <laughs> Jesus. After all, this is a nation of criminals. So, <laughs> I don't actually believe that statement. Australia has lovely people and places yes. to visit. Yes. But that's like the joke. So, after explaining all of this to the police, Holmes agreed to be a witness at the inquest into Jimmy Smith's death that was to be held on June 12th. Now, in another fucking twist of fate, or maybe not a twist of fate, a purposeful twist. The day of the inquest, Holmes was found dead in his car. He had three gunshot wounds to his chest. This is confusing things even further because people started talking that Holmes ordered a hit on himself to commit suicide or kind of an assisted suicide. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he tried once and it didn't go as planned. Exactly. So, legal historian Alex Castles argued another explanation in his book about the case, and the the hit on himself thing was discussed, and it really wasn't, like, a committing suicide kind of a thing. He stated that he wanted to spare his family embarrassment, and if he owned up to the crimes and he revealed it during the trial... They would get nothing. He'd get sent to jail. They would be embarrassed. All of these things. So as a resort, he decided to put a hit on himself so that he would be killed, murdered, so that his family would then collect life insurance. He wouldn't have to confess. And they'd be spared all of this horrible stuff. Well, I mean, not really. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. There still would be all of the pressure and bullshit that they'd have to deal with because their dad just got shot in a car and he's a criminal so you know right right. (laughs) now other people believe that brady had either killed him himself or hired someone to take him out as the sole witness against him so there is also that so was he murdered by brady did brady hire a hit because brady wasn't technically he was like being investigated and like they were putting forth the inquest but he wasn't In police custody. So, did Brady kill him? Did he kill himself? Did Brady hire someone to kill himself? Did he hire someone to kill himself? (laughs) It's all confusing. We'll never know. (laughs) Now, the trial still attempted to kind of move forward to, you know, have Brady finally put it to rest and say, I didn't have anything to do with this. Now, Brady's lawyer argued that all the other evidence was circumstantial, and more importantly, that an arm was not a body, and with no body, there was no homicide. Okay, I don't know about that. He said a one-armed Jim Smith could still be alive somewhere, walking around, being all one-armed. I don't think that's true. So the judge agreed and directed the jury to acquit him. What the fuck? Brady was let off, but then immediately arrested on forgery charges as soon as he walked out of the courthouse. Not exactly a master forger. (laughs) Wow. He maintained his innocence in the murder until his death in 1965. Now, there is a local historian who has also floated the theory that Smith was a police informant and that he was actually killed by another person, bank robber Eddie Wayman, after Smith provided info that led to Eddie Wayman being arrested. So there is also that theory that was kind of floated after the fact. Um, Mm -hmm. Sadly, the rest of Jimmy Smith's body was never found, and his murder was never actually officially solved. But was it? 
<laughs> I feel like it probably was. I mean, I feel also, too, like it probably was. But the historian who floated that he was, you know, murdered by somebody else, that's also a possibility. I guess, but... We don't really know exactly who killed him. We just know somebody fucking killed him. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe he's still maybe alive even. with no and arm. Then I'm going to float this theory that Brady... Maybe knew that Eddie Wayman was going to kill him, let him kill him, and then he's like, can I just take the arm? Took the arm, tried to do another setup. He's a forger, always conning. That's yeah. why you listen to this story, and you always know. Be always conning. be conning. Always, always, always. So, that <laughs> oh my God. is the tale of the shark arm murder. And I just put this beautiful little, this is the newspaper article that they put in the newspaper after he coughed up an arm. Fish's man-eater coughed up a tattooed arm and bared a ghastly murder ring. Ugh, so good. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, guys. It's fun times. So... I will say up front that mine is a little shorter, but I kind of wanted to cover this because the story that I'm looking at is probably one of the more well-known cases if you live in Australia. Like, this is a case that affected a lot of people. And that is the murder of Rachel Barber. Okay. So in 1999, Rachel Barber was a 15-year-old dance student from Melbourne, Australia, Most descriptions of the teen described her as having star qualities and ambitions of performing in stage productions. They also talked about she did some modeling. She was incredibly beautiful, like just this all-in-one package. Around 1993, uh, Rachel's family moved into the area where they met Carolyn Reed Robertson. And Robertson would later work for the family as a nanny beginning in 1996. In 1997, Robertson photographed uh, Barber for a project. She later told the Barber family that an influential connoisseur, which to me sounds very sketchy. It does. But an influential connoisseur was interested in the photos she had taken. I don't know what that was all about. I didn't really find more about that, but it gives me like pedophile vibes. Yeah. Yeah. Because at that point, she would have been, let's see, 12. Ew. Yeah. When 1999 rolls around, Ro- uh, Robertson had reached out again to get Barbara's date of birth, once again claiming that it was for a project. This time, however, she used the information to send off for a copy of Barbara's birth certificate. Okay. On March 1st, 1999, Rachel Barber left her home for her dance school, the Dance Factory in richmond australia and this would be the last time that anybody in her family sees her alive after dropping her off at the bus stop in the morning barbara's parents would meet her later that evening at a previously decided place but when she failed to arrive her parents immediately got in touch with authorities who began searching for the missing girl by the next morning there was little to no trace of the girl and the search picked up with way more immediacy and police began questioning anyone they could find to try to reconstruct Barbara's last, uh, Barbara's last movements on the day that she disappeared. The questioning uncovered that at 5 35 PM, Barbara had left school with a group of friends that she walked with for about 10 minutes before breaking from the group. From there, she went to meet with old family friend, Carolyn Robertson, who at this point was 19 years old. And she had previously arranged to pay Barber a hundred. Well, it was initially reported as a hundred dollars, and then later the story had changed to five hundred dollars for participating in some sort of psychological experiment. The two girls were observed riding the bus together at Pergrand, where they got off and went to Robertson's apartment. At approximately 6.40 p.m., both girls were seen together outside of Robertson's apartment building. 
Further questioning found that a neighbor had heard screams coming from Robertson's apartment that evening, but hadn't found the occurrence suspicious. Once this information had been revealed, police conducted a search of Robertson's apartment. Um, There, they found a bag of clothes that were Barber's size, as well as the application for the birth certificate filled out in Barber's name. This was enough for police to arrest Robertson and bring her in for questioning. And little did they know at that time, they would be faced with a bizarre plot to assume Barber's identity. So in classic dumb criminal fashion, I would say, Robertson had been keeping journals. Um, Oh, what did we say it's like our number one rule of committing crime is you literally do not record it anywhere not a live journal not a real journal don't do it (laughs) so in these journals she compiled her plan to drug and murder barber dispose of her body and assume her identity now during her time working with the barber family robertson had been able Well, she had developed, like, I would say a less than healthy obsession with (laughs) Barber. Yeah. I mean, to the point of murder. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And continued to stalk her after her time as a nanny for the family had ended. Now, in these journals, Robertson had uh, somehow managed to outline a psychological profile of Barber in her plans to kill the girl, including using quote-unquote drowsy powder or a toxic cloth over the mouth. These journals also included her innermost thoughts on herself as outlined by Morbidology. Quote, Carolyn described herself as ugly, fat, and a social failure and shared her fears that she would be a failure at achieving her dream of acting. She wrote how she hated her life and appearance. And in one posting, she wrote, I feel like a troubled and tortured lost soul thrown into a world of angels. End quote. Wow. Was that? Okay. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I mean, even in 1999, like, I think this definitely speaks to the perceived vision of like what a you know like this the standards of beauty the standards of success like Mm -hmm. what that looks like which is something that just generally as a society i think we've been struggling to portray as something positive and not this like if you don't fit into this mold you're ugly if you don't fit into this mold you're unsuccessful like Mm -hmm. let's check it everybody just take a step back and check your shit. The only thing we should be molding is chocolate. Other than that, yes. don't. <laughs> oh, my God. So in her confession, Robertson laid out the events of that evening. Once the two had arrived at the apartment, Robertson laced Barber's pizza with an antihistamine that caused drowsiness. Don't be fucking with the pizza. Yeah. Pizza is pure. It was the pizza. God I was like, damn it. Aw. After the drugs took effect, Robertson strangled Barbara to death with a telephone cord. Barbara's body remained in the apartment for two days before Robertson moved it to her father's farm, where it was buried. They talked about it being buried next to, like, the family's pet cat that had been buried back there years ago. Yeah. Police did go to the farm in Kilmore, where they found uh, Barbara's body buried in a shallow grave with the telephone cord still wrapped around her neck. Uh, Robertson was promptly charged with Barber's murder. Now, Robertson went to court in 2000, where she pleaded guilty to Rachel Barber's murder. During her appearance, Robertson described herself as unhappy and a friendless nobody. The judge in the case, Justice Frank Vincent, said in his remarks at her sentencing hearing, quote, that Robertson had been motivated to kill by envy for her family, her beauty and her personality. And because you believed that she would be likely to have a happy and successful life of a kind that you anticipated you would never experience, end quote. It's a very strange way to put it. <laughs> yes. Well, you can imagine this all in an Australian accent and all <laughs> like in the high court. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I can imagine that it's a very um, like crown way to talk about things. They do mm-hmm. it similarly in the UK and also in New Zealand. Like it's very formal. 
like weirdly formal. Now, of course, the question of Robertson's mental state was addressed at trial. Like clearly there's something going something else going on here. Forensic scientist Justine Barry Walsh testified that although Robertson was quote unquote profoundly disturbed, she was not legally insane at the time of the murder. Uh, Barry Walsh Walsh also stated, quote, it is possible that she thought she could somehow reinvent herself in the image of the victim, end quote. Robertson was sentenced to 20 years in prison with a minimum of 14 and a half years to be served. Now, Robertson was first considered for parole in August 2013, but following protests from the barbers, um, from Rachel's parents, parole was denied. It was reconsidered in 2015 and approved this time, and Robertson was released from prison in January 2015. Rachel Barber's parents have maintained that they wished Robertson serve at least 17 years in prison, but not necessarily the full 20, which I found interesting. Elizabeth Barber, who's Rachel's mother, explains this by saying, quote, if a person stays in jail for their full sentence on their release, they cannot be legally monitored in the community. That's why it is important she still has some time on parole so she could be monitored on release. Okay, interesting take. It is. And I, I understand where she's coming from as, you know, the remaining survivors of of you know rachel Mm -hmm. like i can kind of get where she's coming from with that Mm -hmm. i will say the barbers have been public about their forgiveness of robertson and have asked that the community at large not harass the woman and give her the space that she needs to rehabilitate saying quote she was diagnosed with a personality disorder and now that she is older will hopefully recognize when she needs to seek help And, quote, there's enough hatred in the world already without people promoting more, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, I I mean, obviously, I don't think there's like a playbook for this kind of thing, right? Like nobody expects any. Well, I can't say that either. I think there is a certain expectation of how you're going to act. But like what you do after that, like, I I don't know how I would react Mm -hmm. to somebody being murdered in my family and like that process of forgiveness and, and like getting on the other side of it. Right. But. It's not very often that you see the remaining members of the family, like, kind of, I want to say positive, but forgiving and just trying to be like, let's all move on. Mm -hmm. I found that really interesting. Yeah. The murder of Rachel Barber did go on to inspire the Australian film I Am You. It's also called In Her Skin um, in some places. It's won multiple Australian film awards and U.S. film awards, and I haven't watched it, but it seems like it could be good. I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, so that is the story of Rachel Barber. Yikes. Yeah. When this, like I said, when this was happening, like, the country was gripped, and it is Mm -hmm. kind of an unusual story of, like... Someone wanting to take over somebody's life. And not a successful way at all. (laughs) No. No. So, if you are uh, flying to Australia, which, honestly, I wouldn't advise in these times of pandemic. Yeah. Like, let's just... Let's not do that yet. (laughs) Um, But if you are, maybe you should check out this podcast. And then maybe a couple more podcasts. It's going to be a real long flight. (laughs) And take a nap. And then, yeah. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the new podcast, We're All Just Pretending. It's a podcast that has elements of Dear Abby with a twist of post-secret. Every episode, I'll read listener questions and provide advice and insight as a friend. My own pod friends will even join in and offer their advice on parenting, relationships, and even give you really bad advice on purpose. Since we all have secrets to share, there'll also be a segment focusing on letting the skeletons out of your closet. If you're looking for advice or want to share a secret, head to allpretendingpod.com. And remember, we're all just pretending here.
All right, Janelle, that has been our show. We're done. We did it. it. We did it. Um, If you guys haven't heard us talking about casting whimsy recently. Where the fuck have you been? No. Yeah. (laughs) You should check that out. If you like tea, if you like cookies, if you like nerdy things. Mm Mm-hmm. Janelle, do you want to talk about Casting Whimsy? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. We are ambassadors for Casting Whimsy Tea Shop, and that is located in Woodstock, Illinois. You can order from them online or in person. Um, And they have a variety of teas for everybody. They have really delicious baked goods. They have marshmallows. They have everything. They have, like, teacups. They have diffusers. So if you got enough tea, but you need a diffuser, or you might need a new teacup, hop on over there. We've been posting a lot of reviews and recipes. If you are paying attention, we, by the time this comes out, have a little crime and tea segment that's popped up. So I'm I'm on my shit. Uh, Nice. (laughs) um, But yeah, if you love it, you can get yourself some from them and you can get a discount because we love to share. If you use BTC Pod at checkout online, or if you hop into the shop and say, I know the Bad Taste Crime Podcast, they will give you 10% off your first order. Yay. So do it. Yes. It's delicious. Uh, so you can find that at castingwibsy.com if you want to order some, if you're not here. If you are here, just stop into the store. They are not open on Sundays. Just as No, a don't on. do it. Don't do that. <laughs> Janelle's been there way too many times. Yeah, it's there's no Sundays, but you yes. can come in on a Saturday and then go to the farmers market because there's also a farmers market on the square yes. at the same time. It's very good. Yes. Um. So I think that's all that we have for today. Uh, I can. Can you think of anything? No. I all right. That's it. Uh. So with oh, that, well, our, we oh. we will be taking a, a short break. Oh yes, coming up. Um, but we'll still be about content, but it's going to be um, some yeah. pre-recorded things. We are in school. We have lives. We're busy. Um, so we're yeah. taking a little break for ourselves. So it won't be anything too abnormal. You'll still get yes. something to listen to. But uh, yeah. Yeah. We will be back with you in December. December. <laughs> Yeah. Where are we? What time is it? Yeah, I had to yeah. think about that for a minute. Um, yeah, yeah, so, so we'll November's be back a little with bit you of a break. in December, mm-hmm. but in the meantime, we'll be releasing our set from the Elgin Fringe Festival, which is really exciting, um, and some other stuff. So look out for that. I think that's it now. That's officially it now. <laughs> All right. Our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, The Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We. Well, I guess we'll see you in December, like, for, yeah. We'll see you when we see you, It'll okay? be, like, winter Gosh. the next time we're recording. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, okay. We'll see you then. Bye! <laughs> Bye! Women have left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town.